The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Hello and welcome to today's episode. I'm talking to Emily Browker all about communication and how cultural differences can trip us up when it comes to building inclusivity despite the best of intentions. Emily is a keynote speaker and trainer who has worked around the world for two decades, teaching clients how to create trusting relationships across differences. As the CEO of Refresh Communication, she helps international NGO, corporate and government clients to develop the skills needed to work through challenges related to unconscious judgments, defensiveness and conflict escalation. She finds often people leave trust up to chance, thinking sometimes it's just not a fit. But she's found that you can't engage with others until you learn to engage with yourself. Her work incorporates cutting-edge breakthroughs in neuroscience, decades of training and consulting experience, two master's degrees in topics related to culture and communication, and experience living and working in over 30 countries, including two years in the US Peace Corps. Emily is also an affiliate faculty member at Regis University in Denver, Colorado, where she teaches graduate and undergraduate intercultural communication, conflict management and ethics. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. So Emily, I want to start with asking you, what does doing good mean to you personally? Yeah, you know, I think that doing good means contributing to the world by helping people calm their nervous system, ultimately, is what I'm interested in and is helping people have you know, a reality where they feel that their basic needs are met. They feel like they are heard and they belong and they feel safe both physically and emotionally. And so I feel like when I think about doing good in the world, it's a matter of helping people just feel calmness in their nervous system. What do you think it is that drives you to want to do good? I think if I'm, if I'm really honest, <laughs> I think it feeds back to my mom. I lost my mom when I was 13 and she was sick for seven years before that. And she loved going abroad and she was a stay-at-home mom. She did a lot of volunteering. And so she kind of taught me what it means to be in different countries. I mean, I went to Madagascar when I was nine and saw my privilege reflected back at me at a very young age. And then in terms of the nervous system piece, for seven years, I didn't know if she was going to die the next day. And then for a long time after that, I didn't know what it meant to have lost your mother. And I just was on edge all the time. And I saw people on edge around me. And I think as I went into my own healing, 
I realized that there was a piece of it that was helpful for other people, you know, what I was going through and what I was learning. And then I also get to always learn from my clients. And it's like a, a back and forth that I love that I feel like we can mutually create something better than we had a moment before. And I feel like that's my contribution. So do you think your your personal experience kind of led you to want to study and understand how trauma and the nervous system affect how we communicate with others? So I think I had a, a multi-level response, you know, part of it losing my mom and then just kind of having my nervous system be on edge. And then another part of the, my response to that was, I'm going to go travel and just be like way, you know, way out there. How far can I go? And that's where in a set, like where I, I had to learn to understand what was going on on around me and that's where the cross-cultural communication piece came in is really understanding people's worldviews or trying to i don't know if we can actually really ever understand where someone else is coming from but we can make a lot of steps towards that um, by understanding culture and so i think that's how the pieces fit together for me so you started out doing international development work through the peace Corps. what motivated you to join yeah, I graduated from college and it's actually not really very altruistic <laughs> intentions. I was basically like, you know, I would love to do something abroad and I have a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm and I don't have my next step figured out. Like, can I contribute this somewhere? Can I do good with my energy? Basically, I was pretty open-minded about where I went, what I did how I got assigned there and was um, able to kind of create my own path through that. Was it what you wanted it to be or what you imagined it to be? Yeah, it was. I would say I got lucky in my assignment of being in an incredibly remote area. I was in um, the Republic of Kiribati in the Central Pacific and I was on an island, very, very, very small island. Like you could see the ocean side and lagoon side anywhere on the island. I was like nine miles long. And so I didn't have pretty much any oversight. <laughs> they basically dropped me off and was like, okay, do what you can in two years, which worked for me. So <laughs> I was able to learn the language. I was able to just listen and able to take a, a stance that ethically felt good to me. I think that if I was in a place with a lot more oversight, that it probably wouldn't have gone so well because I think my views would have conflicted with other people's views on why a volunteer could be there. <laughs> And did that experience kind of trigger the beginning of those thought processes around cross-cultural communication? Yes. So I would say the, the real trigger for that thought process was when I studied abroad in China and I was studying acupuncture, I just realized like, wow, to even consider medicine in this way to get to the methods and have a shared consideration of what it means to be well that's so dramatically different from mine that, that that's where I actually shifted from going into medicine to going into cross-cultural work. And then in the Peace Corps, a lot of that was deepened. And then I could see 
like, wow, this is this cross-cultural piece is it, it's really causing misdirection in a lot of international projects and with a lot of my fellow volunteers and what they're assuming was the right thing to do in the community and then what the community wanted, there's like a total disconnect. And so that was the communication piece of like, how do we actually get people talking about the same things and working through problems in a way where you're thinking about it from the perspective of the people that are receiving support in this dynamic you've spoken about how different cultures make assumptions on what is polite uh, what the kindest way to communicate is and so on can you highlight some of those differences and how they might play out in in real life so one of the most interesting things, so I, I'm always my own like Petri dish of exploration of like what's possible with these concepts. Because you can learn about cultural differences, but when it comes, culture only informs behavior. It doesn't predict it. So we can't walk around like predicting how people are going to act. But if we learn about it, we can we can make some better guesses. And one experience that I had in India was really interesting, which was, so I know that I'm a very direct communicator, as a lot of people in more individualistic cultures are. So I have a value of listening in a certain style, which is more like, you know, I ask a lot of questions and I, I brainstorm with people and we bounce ideas off each other. There's not a lot of pauses in the conversation. Uh, and more indirect cultures, which a gross generalization would be more rural cultures tend to be more indirect, more community-minded, a little bit more focused on harmony than like cutting to the chase and being brutally honest. The listening is different as well, which includes a lot of like long pauses and just silence. And so I was in India once and I was working with a couple different colleagues and I knew that there was some sort of conflict between my American colleague and this Indian man. And um, there's also in indirect cultures, there tends to be more use of a third party. So to not have the conflict with someone directly, but to use a third person to go between. So I was like, what if I can offer myself up to my Indian colleague as kind of this go between? So thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, I'm going to really experiment with my listening style here and go into this meeting and like ask one question and then just allow for these really, really, really long silences. and. I went in and I started asking questions and I was biting my tongue. It was so hard and so awkward not to continue asking questions. And just over the course of maybe it was like a half hour, we were just, we were silent a lot. And every long silence ended with him dropping in further and explaining more of his position and getting really honest and feeling like, okay, we're, we're holding this space together. And I, it was uncomfortable for me because I was switching my style. It ended up him being like, yes, you know, I feel really supported. And right before I left though, he goes, okay. And then make sure you don't tell our other colleague about this conversation. And I was like, oh no, like I'm not the third party here. And then he was like, unless you feel it's really important. And so he was like, in his way, kind of giving me permission to go about it, you know, and it was so fascinating. Um, and so we all have our different ingrained ways of listening and talking to people. And there's not to explore a different way and get a different outcome if you learn about it. I want to talk a little bit more about listening and its role in I guess, international development or, or helping others and doing good. Um, I've had a few guests come on and talk about the importance of listening 
first to those we want to help and creating a container or a space for listening before doing. What are your thoughts on that? I guess my first thought is, so when I, in my work, I talk about the trust to really get to the place where you're listening, you need to build trust because when we're saying, you know, tell me your problems, how can I help you? Like, you're not going to just tell a stranger. And if anything, I think a lot of areas you go in the world right now, there's a lot of broken trust just with outsiders who come in and they promise something, they're caught up in emotions and they promise something and then they never come back with it. And so I kind of think of me as myself, an outsider traveling to different countries. I'm working against a trust barrier to begin with. So to be honest, it's usually time. You need to put in the time and it's usually the casual time in a lot of countries that aren't so time oriented. You know, if you if you go to Germany where people want to be super efficient and that builds trust, that's one thing. To show someone you respect them in that kind of context is like, let's get right down to business. I value your time. But in a lot of other contexts, it's like, let me come over and have dinner with you. Let me ask about your kids. Let's go to a soccer game together. Let's do this and this. do nothing related to business or your intention of being there, which again is uncomfortable for folks and especially if you're on a limited budget. So I think you have to set the stage for trust first and then you can start to listen and then you can actually get good information from people. And it's important to be honest in that process, you know, to say like, hey, I I was sent here to explore this, but really I want to explore everything or whatever you can do to really be honest and transparent and create a genuine heart connection is going to have a direct impact on what you learn. You've talked about the paradox of participatory development and how it's inherently flawed. Can you explain why? Yes. So I think when I started to learn about participatory development, I was like, yes, look, this whole concept built on listening to the community and engaging their responses. And when I look on you know, across across the web related to development and development projects, you see participatory everywhere because I think people pretty bought in that it's important. But I think that usually it's inherently flawed because by the time you have funding to go somewhere, you've already created some sort of hypothesis of what needs to happen in this community and you've received funding from an appropriate funder who wants to fund this sort of initiative. So if you then go into the community and say you're doing something participatory, you're already guiding them towards the outcome that you've predetermined. And so it's it doesn't necessarily work. If you really want to genuinely listen, you have to be open to the project changing pretty quickly or for a new thing to emerge and you have to have pretty amazing and flexible donors to be adaptable enough to work with that. And so I think it's pretty tricky. The way to move around that is to really have people on the ground, most likely from the country, who get it, are there to do the initial research before you even get the funding so that it's super clear about what the needs are. So it has to be very, very top to bottom. It's a model that I feel like we could build upon a lot and improve a lot. You also talked in that space that the person that holds the power and resources 
makes the decisions about how the interaction flows. Yeah, I define the power dynamic as whoever holds the access to resources. So not only do typically the people in power actually make the decision, but they also, I mean, in terms of like where the money goes, but they also make decisions about communication and what kind of communication goes. And so you'll find organizations where people with a certain communication style are just constantly edged out. If it's a communication style that's radically different from, let's say, the paradigm of a Western country going into a country in the global south, then it's the Western style that's going to edge out the other styles. And you'll, you could be surrounded by locals, but the question to ask yourself is, are you surrounded by locals who just happen to have your same communication style? Because perhaps their background was in a Western education. So are you actually accessing the kind of knowledge you want to access? Are you just surrounding yourself by the people who are most similar to you? Which is I'm saying you, but it's also me. I mean, that's our comfort zone is to be around people who speak like us and talk like us and look like us. And so really need to to push ourselves out of that to be able to expand beyond what we know. That's, I feel like, our, our job in international work. I want to talk about ethnocentrism in the world of doing good because you've just touched on it there. And this this idea that our unconscious biases influence how we interact with others and who we perceive as in need of our help. A lot of conversation has come up through different guests on this podcast around this concept of othering and how we are, I guess, victim to othering and we are playing out those unconscious bias around who is requiring our help and a misconception that we are automatically in a position to give it because we are different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's that's kind of <laughs> a kind of the premise of international development in itself, <laughs> right? right? Is like <laughs> I do have power and access to resources that other people don't. Let me go offer this instead of, you know, you do you definitely see cases of completely collaborative models. And it usually emerges from people who have been on the ground for a long time in another country, you know, years and years and years, Um, which precludes all the people that burn out after two years in the field of international development. I've done way more than that, you know, five, 10 years. But I think it's something that really needs to be watched for. I mean, it's basic human nature to other, like think about how we were, our brains are coded in, in a very tribal way like you know eons ago we were just let's protect our tribe people who are outside of our tribe are not safe and i don't think there's without really conscious interventions ways to get beyond that and we have to recognize that our brain is not wired for the global world that we live in whether it's diverse work environments here in the u.s or working internationally the temptations of our brain to other is is so strong that we we really need to intervene on it consciously each step along the way and that's why i mean i think podcasts like yours and other ones are really good to start questioning these these instincts that just come up and this is the hard part and get really really honest with yourself (laughs) that you have it like it's so tempting to be like unconscious bias yes it's too bad other people have unconscious bias, (laughs) you know? It's really having some negative impacts on the world. No, we all have it. It is 
in us and we need to own it so that we can deal with it. Um, yes. And it's, yes. it's primal. It's, it's, it's part of us. And I think, you know, part of that owning it is acknowledging our own motivations for wanting to help other people but then acknowledging that the othering, that it's it's a natural thing, that we all do it, everybody does it. There's very good reasons why, as you've just outlined, we do it. But if we're unaware of it, then we can cause a lot of damage. Right, right. There's almost like a, a daily check-in that we need around it, you know, like an end of the day, like how might I have othered someone, you know, in a more concrete way to just track ourselves. And it happens for so many different reasons. And like without completely isolating ourselves from the media entirely, which I, I certainly don't feel like it's possible for myself to do that. It's going to be hard to, to rid ourselves from the justifications that we feel to other people, you know. I'm quite fascinated by the role of neuroscience around this space. Um, also interested in looking at how evolutionary biology has talked about the concept of altruism and reciprocal altruism. And, um, you know, I, I find all of this quite fascinating. What work have you done around the neuroscience side of this? With some of my clients, I work through something called brain states management, which is really interesting. And some colleagues of mine developed it. And it's basically looking at the neuroscience of inclusion and how just how challenging it is for us. And, you know, basically we're looking at how when we encounter difference or dis discomfort, like I was talking about a couple minutes ago with that conversation with my Indian colleague, we go into a lower brain state. We go into a part of our brain that's much more the fight or flight, like very, and that's where the othering gets so tricky because if we're in fight or flight, we need to identify our enemy and get away from them. Like that's basically what our brain is telling us. We're not running away from saber-toothed tigers anymore. That difference comes up in, oh, there's a woman in the meeting who's being very vocal and I need to either quiet her, get her out of the room, or, you know, make sure she doesn't seem legitimate. And so that's where that behavior comes in. And so we just need to learn ways to override that. And so with, with clients, I focus on, you know, how do you rewire your brain so you can stay in that higher brain state where you have the executive functioning to tune into subtle social cues, to track your thinking, to track what's going on in your environment and notice when you need to, to redirect what's happening. <laughs> Fascinating. And do you see tangible change when that happens? Yes. Yes. There are certain tools that I teach that I have found extremely helpful and my clients have as well. And it's, you know, basically working with our, our thinking. And when we work with our thinking, we start asking different questions and considering, you know, who is being asked questions. And you can actually, if you stay in your higher brain, you can actually intervene in the ways that, you know, you might have gone to a training and you learned this like totally new way of thinking or engaging with someone. But then when you go back to your your life, you don't, you don't do it because you just get swept up in your normal day-to-day -day life. And so that's where I see the difference is that people are able to consciously make a new choice. That's interesting to me. We need change. So we need individuals that can make new choices. So do you see 
a concerted effort within the NGO world to implement better practices around cross-cultural communication as part of, I guess, their mandate to improve outcomes. Let me answer in a kind of indirect way, because I'm sure there are plenty of people listening who are like, oh, I, I could have a good example, but no examples <laughs> come to mind. <laughs> I can speak from, it's not an NGO, but my Peace Corps experience, we were given a, a couple lessons on cross-cultural communication, which which actually kind of spawned my whole careers. I wanted to go back and train in the Peace Corps, but I, I don't want to be gone for three months at a time now. <laughs> I'd like to see more. I think that it's one of these things that gets pushed down the rung of priorities when there's, there's often such urgency in the world and limited funds as well. And so, I mean, one one way I've, I've addressed this is to create a course that's available to individual people who are on the ground in remote areas who want to do cross-cultural training with their cohort, but, you know, they're in rural Uganda or they're somewhere where they can't get a trainer to come out. So that's one way that I've tried to fill this need and tried to make it as affordable as possible. <laughs> we'll put that on the show notes as well if anybody's listen, interested that's listening. I'm just wondering, have there been any studies that are kind of comparatively showing the impact or the benefits of making sure that people who are delivering, you know, development interventions, that they have cross-cultural communication training versus those that don't? Again, I don't know of any of those studies. The tricky, super tricky thing in cross-cultural communication world, it's very hard to tease it out from other factors. It makes my own program evaluation very tricky. And the whole field of cross-cultural communication is kind of grappling with this. You know, how do we best, especially in terms of numbers, we, can, we have a lot of qualitative ways of evaluating. Like I felt, you know, people with training feeling more empowered to, to manage the stress of going to a different culture, more empowered to, to understand what was going around on around them. So they were less stressed, again, feeding back into the nervous system thing. There's a little bit more coming out in the business world. I know that in international business, it's something like less than, feels like a high number to me right now, but something like less than 30% of people working internationally have any sort of cross-cultural communication training, which is, of course, shocking to me. Yes, me <laughs> but, too. <laughs> But um, how how would you? I I just would feel so underprepared to not do research and understand and know how my culture is affecting this interaction. But um, yeah, working. I um I participated in cross cultural communication training many years ago through a program called Asia Link Leaders Program run out of the University of Melbourne, and um, I have to say that that training that component of the course was probably one of the most valuable things I've ever done in the context of my work and has really enabled me to kind of take a step back and look at how I communicate and be considerate of that in, in new cultures. Um, I, I travel a lot for work. I often go to new countries, different cultures, different regions, and that training is often at the forefront of my mind, when, particularly when I'm in a, a meeting for the first time in a new country. Yes, totally. I don't know how I would interact without having done that. I know. 
I know exactly. I'm like, yeah. how would I, how would I have done that? And then of course, like there's a funny little paradox too, that happens when we are uncomfortable. We're a little on edge, which happens to most of us when they, we go to a new place anyway, is that we go even further into our primal cultural behaviors. So this is particularly poignant when you're like, you're in conflict. Let's say for an example, the one that's really poignant for me, because this is actually the communication dynamic between my husband and I. So we, we deal with this every day is that I'm more emotionally restrained in the way that I deal with conflict, which means I want to build trust with someone by becoming a little bit more reserved. I'm not going to show that uh, I'm really heated about something through my body language. I'm going to show it through like, I'm going to be really intentional with the way that I talk. I'm going to need a little space. And then a more emotionally engaged person, like my husband, will show how much he cares about the situation by how, how much emotional commitment he has to the situation. That could look like in my assessment, yelling, you know, using a lot of hand gestures, a lot of eye contact, getting closer. And for me, so like, that's when like the communication styles really oppositional. Yeah. yeah they, they make the, the conflict escalate a lot. For me, I'm thinking like, whoa, he's out of control. He's, you know, what's happening. <laughs> and he's thinking she doesn't care about this. And like, if I didn't have training, I would be dealing with this in a much I mean, it's still a challenge. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's still a challenge. But my little, like, tip, and this is what's worked for me in dealing with that, is I just imagine that he's subtitled. <laughs> like, that he's he's talking and he's passionate. And when I see that passion coming through and I start to feel my nervous system, like, kind of freak out, I just subtitle underneath him. Like, he really cares about what he's talking about. He really cares what he's talking about. It's like a newsreel. It's like going at the I bottom. I try that. He's really, he's really caring. And it helps me. It helps shift things enough that I can then decide, you know, do I want to try some more engagement or do I want to take care of my nervous system needs and say, let's revisit this. And it gives me, again, that choice. Like we, if we don't have choice, we're not going to navigate situations in any new way. We're just going to keep repeating the same patterns again and again and again, which repetition of relationships in the same way, it just leads to frustration and all of that. So. so on this podcast, we often talk about how things can go wrong in our attempts to do good. Do you have any particularly relevant examples of, of how a lack of knowledge about the importance of cross-cultural communication can really cause negative outcomes. This is probably a familiar story to a lot of folks in cultures in which the communication patterns are more accommodating and people say yes a lot. I feel like that leads into a lot of development projects that completely flop. So, you know, you go into a community and you're like, you know, we have this funds, we're going to do girl and women's empowerment work in rural Guatemala, which is something that I was asked to be a part of. And they're like, you know, the leaders are saying, yes, we want this. And they go in and they do the training. And then when it comes down to it, when it comes down to elders and parents and, and folks empowering the girls to actually do this work, they're like, no, 
that doesn't work with our culture. So being wary of the yes, that's when we have to actually build trust and get really good cultural liaisons that we can be like, was that a yes? <laughs> or was that a yes? That's, I think, a really tricky one that I see a lot and I've been a part of a lot because when I hear yes, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like, let's do this. <laughs> We're on the same page when it's like, no, actually, they're, they're trying to be polite because you're a visitor and that's a polite thing to do. And yes doesn't mean yes. Yes means, okay, I, I hear you. Yeah, yeah, it means, I, uh, yeah, I'm listening to you. <laughs> I learned that. Um, I, I worked in Cambodia for many years and I also learned that, you know, yes doesn't mean yes. And yes is often followed by a long pause. And if you give space for that pause, then the actual answer comes. But if you fill that space, you're likely to make a decision based on that first yes. Yes, totally. And that's that's where I feel like the piece around working with our ability to sit with discomfort is so important. Because I know as myself, I heard a, a study cited once with a, a an average pause in a US American boardroom is like one or two seconds, you know, and then on to the next. And then in Japan it can be up to five or seven minutes, which is like, whoa, whoa, I would, I would totally (laughs) fill that space. I would completely fill that space. Recognizing discomfort, it's not what our primal brain wants us to think it is, which is like the ultimate danger, danger, danger. There's a tiger running at us. It's like, no, 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 no. Look around. I'm safe. Of course, our nervous system does tell us at times that we need to get out of somewhere, but like you just having that self-talk of like, I'm going to stay silent is so key got to get out of the reactive brain yeah it's it's really interesting I do a lot of facilitation overseas and I find that I have to adapt that style dependent on where I am but even if I'm a little bit tired or a little bit distracted I automatically revert back to my style and it has to be a conscious you know a conscious decision okay I'm in Fiji or I'm in Cambodia and it's different. And, you know, when you're asking for contributions and feedback and reflection, that sometimes that silence before anybody feels like they want to say anything can be a really, really long time. It can, it can. You have to kind of go out and play with it, you know, like how long can I wait? Um, yeah, the uh, brain energy is something that we talk about in the brain states management work is because if you're low brain energy, you haven't slept enough. I mean, as a mom, I've been like a living experiment of like, what happens to me if I have low brain energy? Oh, I, it's it's not good. It's not pretty. It's, <laughs> not, <laughs> it's not what I want. But uh, yeah, in that course that I mentioned, it's it's all about adapting mostly the training style for different contexts of like, how do you, how do you create how do you invite different voices in and make sure that you're accounting for lots of different cultural styles of learning and communicating and but to do it again you have to be in your higher brain and often you know we fly in the night before and we're jet lagged and exhausted and And you're eating new food and you're like not fully hydrated and yeah fascinating so many layers to it it really is that's why I say, you know, culture informs behavior, but it doesn't dictate it. You know, we can, we can choose a different way and then we can also be completely rigid in our ways. It's, it's very dynamic. I'm really interested um, around how 
tourism and the bringing in of different cultures influences culture and power dynamics in in communities um an example is for example community-based tourism where a location is chosen to kind of be created as a tourism destination as a form of economic empowerment for that community right but how does culture and and the culture of the people coming in and all those different cultures influence culture in that particular village and as you were talking about before who holds the power in that situation exactly because the tourism dollar usually holds the power you see really unfortunate situations of people just completely bending to to that cultural preference and then there's there's this feedback when the tourist is very happy because everyone's kind of like doing things their way then they want to be there more and they tell their friends about it and i think that that's extremely painful i think it's really painful for people from that culture, you know, who are who are really watching what's happening there. I see it a lot in art, how, you know, like I have done all of this as well. I'm like learning from this. Like when I was in Tibet, I commissioned a Tonka painting to be painted. And in Tibet, they use really bright colored silks to go on the outside, you know, yellows and bright blues. It's not to my aesthetic. And so I had it like... <laughs> I had it mounted, this beautiful Tonka painting mounted on like this nice light pink color. And I love it. But when I look at it, I'm like, I just took that beautiful form of art and made it more Western to be more appealing to me. And I think we, if you look around the streets, you see that aesthetic spreading. And then it's so hard for a community who's getting flushed with money for who knows how long it'll last that tourists are going there it's very hard to put the power back in their hands and be like, no, stand your ground. Like, just do things your way. Let people come or go. But money is the language that everyone's speaking. I want to come back to you a little bit more. Often I ask who your greatest influence in doing good is. And I think that's probably your mom. I think you you answered that. Has there been anyone in your adult life that you you've kind of that's mentored you or kind of helped you unpack some of this stuff? It's a community of people. It's the community of people in the Where There Be Dragons community, um, where I did a lot of guiding and I've met some of the most amazing and inspiring people, guides in particular, who are so committed to their values and living their values. I am always humbled in in their presence of like, wow, I I could always do better. (laughs) You know, I could always represent a community better. I could always understand my power and privilege better. I could always open people's eyes more. And so that's a group that is doing just phenomenal, phenomenal work. Excellent. And I will put a link to Where There Be Dragons in the show notes as well. Mm -hmm. So, Emily, what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And and this is something that future generations would look back on, you know, thinking three or four generations, maybe even further in the future, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and would wonder what on earth we were thinking. I had two answers pop into my head for that. I mean, climate change is the, the first. Climate change is a big one that 
inspires me in my work because I firmly believe that the only way we're going to unwind ourselves out of this is to incorporate so many different ways of knowing and seeing and really collaborate and really hear from different perspectives, different ways to orient towards the earth. And that is a huge blind spot for a lot of us. And so my hope, my hope is that that will be something that we look back on and it's like, whoa, that was a steep, steep learning curve. And in, in terms of the U.S., I've started to call what's going on here in terms of the hate speech and the blatant racism. It's kind of like a social apocalypse. And the apocalypse, like the original meaning of the word apocalypse is unveiling and revealing. And we were in this like funny, like, oh, Obama was elected. We're in a post-racial society. Like I had students saying that to me and I'm like, no, that's not really where we are. And now it's like totally clear. We're not in a post-racial society. We have a lot, a lot of work to do. And it's particularly how African-Americans are being treated in this country is I don't know. Honestly, I don't know why the UN hasn't intervened. I don't know why the UN hasn't intervened on the, what we're doing at the border. I mean, like this is uh, it, the human rights injustices that are happening here in the States. And then people in the States are going abroad shouting about human rights. It's, it's ridiculous. It's mind boggling. And so I hope, hope, hope that years from now, it's like, oh yeah, this was their wake up call. Like and people rose to that call in this apocalypse and it was like, yeah. We can only hope. <laughs> we can only <laughs> <Yes>. hope. <laughs> so if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? If they could deeply, deeply like in their bones hear it, it would be you matter and you belong. Yeah, excellent. Tell me about someone who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now and why? You know who I, who comes to mind is the folks that were on your show, I think a couple of weeks ago, was the No White Saviors folks. Emily Worrell from Barbie Saviour. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. In Uganda? Tanzania? Oh, maybe we're talking about, there might be two different folks then. There's No White Saviors who are different. There's two different groups. So Barbie Saviour was like the satirical Barbie oh, okay. account and then there's no white saviors they haven't been on and if they're listening I would like you to come on <laughs> <laughs> but their their work is so first of all it's so amazing so it's an Instagram account no white saviors they're I think a couple women or a group of women based in Uganda and they're doing such incredible work to push people to get comfortable with their discomfort and they have like 300,000 followers, which is so great because, you know, the work that I do with white privilege, it's, there's so much resistance out there and it's so hard to get people listening and they have done, and they engage with the, you know, the people that are commenting and it pushes me, you know, like, and I really feel like it reconditions me of new ways to think and new ways to be okay with discomfort. I actually think there's a way that we can use our social media as a really great platform to recondition how we think. If we just follow, if we follow folks like that who challenge the way that we think rather than follow people who reaffirm the way that we think. <laughs> Emily, what's your favorite place on earth? I'm going to give two answers to that too. My favorite place to visit as a traveler is India. I just love like 
intense Indian cities. There's something that is deeply familiar and like makes me come alive and I feel like I should speak Hindi and um, it just brings joy to think about my times in India. Um, and then the other place that comes to mind is a, a beach where I used to go in the summer when I lived in Massachusetts um, and it just feels like home. And my final question is what books are you reading or podcasts are you listening to? So I only can read right, right before I go to bed. And in protection of my nervous system, I, I read very like no one gets hurt. There are no babies who are upset in these books <laughs> <laughs> or else I won't read. So I'm reading one called um, Chestnut Street. I don't actually know the author. It's just a beautiful series of short stories that I really like. So I just try to keep the reading liked. Yes. And then podcasts. I love On Being by Krista Tippett. That I just love how she asks questions and who she talks to. And I feel like it's a meditation while I'm driving. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. I know we're right in the midst of coronavirus crisis. Um, we are right in the middle of it. <laughs> things are a bit chaotic. We're all running out of toilet paper and lentils and things like that. <laughs> exactly. um, so I really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, come on and, and talk to me about this stuff today. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.